So great. That conversation prompt clearly has some legs. I haven't tuned in to watch the Winter Olympics yet, but my mother is live tweeting it to the family chat, and so I've gotten a lot of updates, a lot of ice skating dramas. They're not, my goodness, yesterday. There we go, raise this a little bit. Well, good morning, my name is Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here again. Um, if you uh, have a Bible, go ahead and pull it out um, and open up to 1 Corinthians chapter one. This is the time of our service where we kind of enter into a time of teaching. And typically here at Sedaris, we uh, just walk through a book of the, the Bible at a time. And 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. There's no shame in using the table of contents in order to find it. Um, it is a small letter in the New Testament written by the Apostle Paul. And um, when you get to 1 Corinthians, just meet me in chapter 1. That's the big number 1. We're going to start in verse 26. That's the little 26 after the big chapter 1. So um, welcome. It's great to see you guys. And um, I've really been enjoying our time going through 1 Corinthians together. It's, one of, it's just such a great book, one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, it's such a wonderful, really piece of work that we've, we've really entitled um, uh, just, what's up, what's up, Dave? Hand count. Hand count. Oh, thank you. I almost blew it. Um, we're having the, the, the gospel class afterwards. Before we said uh, there's going to be Chipotle burritos there, but in order to get a burrito, you have to raise your hand. Yeah, there we go. So everybody who's planning on coming to the gospel class, go and give me a, a hand raising here. So we've got one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, All right, perfect. In the back too, okay, perfect. All right, great. You got that, Dave? You got everybody's hands? Perfect. All right, guys, that's going to be a really fun time. And if you change your mind in the middle of the sermon, that's okay. We always order a few extra for you, okay? So good. Great, so 1 Corinthians, back to it. Here we go. Here we go, shifting gears back into it. What is 1 Corinthians? What is this thing? Um, well, we, it's difficult to tell you about 1 Corinthians without talking about the Apostle Paul first. And the Apostle Paul is kind of a, a really enigmatic figure uh, throughout the New Testament in terms of something and uh, someone who God has radically changed their world. Um, this church was started by the Apostle Paul, and he, the Apostle Paul was a high-ranking Jewish teacher. Uh, he converted to Christianity literally as he was throwing Christians in jail. So he had just finished overseeing the execution of a Christian. He's going to another city to throw some more Christians in jail. Jesus appears to him on the road, and he realizes, oh, shoot. I've gotten this completely wrong, and he converts to Christianity. He almost, he begins preaching uh, Jesus right away, um, but over the course of the next 14 years, he's actually a pastor um, just in one church up in a place called Antioch, which is in northern Israel. Um, and then after that, he goes into, and he feels the Spirit begin to call him to start churches in other cities. And so he goes from city to city, and his, uh, his kind of strategy went like this. He'd go into a city, he'd go to a synagogue, he'd tell synagogues, hey, uh, he'd tell Jews in the synagogues, hey, the Messiah has shown up, his name is Jesus, who wants to get on board with this, um, Often he was largely rejected by them, and he said, okay, I'm going to take my, this same message to the Greeks of this city. He was traveling mostly in, in Turkey and Greece, actually. And he, so he took his message there. He'd find, like, the centers where conversation could happen in the, in the city. So uh, he went to um, a place called Mars Hill. Uh, in Athens, which is where philosophy was discussed. Or he'd go to places like the river, 
where laundry was getting done. Uh, back then, typically the person who was doing laundry for the week, that was a 10-hour task instead of, what, like a 45-minute one it is now. And so he'd go down to the rivers where there's all these women doing laundry. He's like, let's, let's strike up some conversation about Jesus. And it was actually through doing all of this that he was actually pretty successful. And he started a dozen, two dozen churches kind of throughout Turkey and modern-day Greece. Now, those churches obviously don't exist still today, but, but he started these churches, and these churches would, in turn, send out other missionaries to start other churches. But so he did the same in Corinth, which is why we have 1 Corinthians here. Um, and we have 1 Corinthians because he would write letters back and forth with the Corinthian church. And um, he did this with a lot of his churches, which is why we have most of these letters actually in the New Testament written by Paul. He would hear rumors about how things are going in the church, and he would write a letter to that church uh, about these rumors that he had been hearing, hoping to try to straighten them out again. And so that's why we have a lot of letters, Galatians, Colossians, Philippians, and Corinthians is no different here. Um, so he wrote lots of letters with them, and the two that we have preserved for us are First and Second Corinthians. That's just a little background as to how this all came to be for anybody who's like newer to Christianity, been like, how does this Bible work together? That's what this letter is, and that's, well, that's why it was written here. And, and Paul wrote this letter that's called First Corinthians because he heard rumors that the hyper-intelligent, arrogant, and even kind of hedonistic part of Corinth culture, which was really close to Athens, uh, both in kind of location and, and culture, uh, all of that culture had begun to seep its way back into the church. Now, these were people who were originally part of that culture and then became Christians and made significant steps towards leaving it behind, but he's heard rumors that, oh man, it's seeping back into the church, which is causing divisions, rivalries, um, and without a doubt, uh, it's just leading to all sorts of different injustices within the community in Corinth, which is looking really gross, not only to the people who are involved in it, but to the people looking in from the outside. So it's without a doubt hurting their presentation of Jesus to the rest of the world as well. And, and what you find right away in this letter, which is, I love this, is that Paul isn't into behavior modification. He's not trying, he's not giving them a list of do's and don'ts. Now, there's some of this do this and do that, uh, don't do that, that's in there. But really, when you read his letter and you start to unpack it, roll up your sleeves like we're doing on Sunday mornings, you find he's not into behavior modification at all, at all. He's actually responding to the rumors he's heard more like a doctor, more like a doctor. Uh, these shortcomings that he's heard rumor of, he treats as symptoms and we'll see this throughout the entire letter, he's treating them as symptoms of a larger disease called misunderstanding the gospel. So he's heard these rumors, and he concludes, oh man, they no longer grasp the gospel in its full content. I need to write a letter back to them in order to clarify what the gospel of Jesus is, and then these other things will take care of themselves. Just like any disease, you, any disease, you treat the disease, not just the symptoms. He's not trying to put band-aids on, on these symptoms he's heard about. He's using them and seeing them as opportunities to get at a bigger disease, uh, which means he's using it as an opportunity to make clear what the message of Jesus really, really is, which means it's such an invaluable resource for us today, and it's been an invaluable resource for 2,000 years now. Um, and so when we grasp what the, the message of Jesus really is, we've said that you can move in step with 
the peculiar wisdom of the gospel. That's what we've entitled this series. Uh, and so moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of the gospel is what Paul's goal is, and it's what our goal is together as well. And we've been talking about this for a couple weeks now, and, and we're going to continue on with it in our discussion today. Um, we're talking about the first symptom that, that Paul pointed at, which went like this. They thought the way that people delivered the gospel was where the power of the gospel came from. That's, that, that's the symptom. They thought that how well people presented and talked about Jesus let, meant how well he would be accepted by people who didn't know Jesus. The Corinthians had begun to think that the human wisdom that the gospel was delivered with was actually the power of God. And, and like, if, if, you can just share, if you can just share the gospel with the right amount of, of winsomeness, uh, if you can just share the gospel anticipating someone's objections perfectly, if you can share the gospel knowing exactly what they need to hear in that moment right now, that, that that'll, that'll be when the gospel has its power. What a silly thing to think, right? We don't think this, do we? Yes, we do. <laughs> we think this. This is how we think. This is such the natural human tendency to think. And this is why Paul is saying, hold up, we've got to clarify what the message of Jesus is. Because when we're depending upon ourselves to deliver his message, we've actually skipped depending upon him, which is what Dave was able to talk about last week. Paul was saying, and Dave brought this out last week, what? I think you guys are really just scared of rejection. You're really just afraid to be embarrassed because God's wisdom, is, it's not just a level above human wisdom. It's something different. It's of a different quality altogether. That's why we've called this series The Peculiar Wisdom of the Gospel. The peculiar, it's, it's strange. It's odd. It's, it's, it's different. It, it, and, and last week, we, we talked about how it's the, the message of the cross. It was all about content. The message of the, the, the cross is this peculiar wisdom of God. And today, Paul shifts gears in this discussion, and he talks about the personhood of wisdom. So he personifies it this week. We talked about the content last week. This week, we're going to talk about the person, which means we're going to be able to talk about Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. And so let's just read our passage together today and, and see if you can draw out the personhood of wisdom that Paul is talking about. It's not associated with Humans, it's associated with Christ, is what Paul's trying to say. He says, brothers and sisters, this is in verse 26, consider your calling. Not many of you are wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen what's weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. In order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now, there's a lot going on here. There, there, there's a lot going on here. So let me give you the big idea, and I'll break it down into two themes for you, which we're going to unpack with the rest of the time today. Um, he unpacks the personhood of wisdom, not finding its fulfillment in people, but in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ became wisdom for us, he said. It's not like he had some wisdom for us. No, he became the wisdom for us 
And, 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 and so we're talking about the personhood of wisdom here, which might be a crazy concept, and Paul knows this is kind of a strange concept, wisdom personified. Um, but when we lean into it, we really are able to unpack two things is what he's doing here. He's talking about the nature of wisdom then, and, and then what that wisdom uh, does. So you could call it um, what, the go- or what this gospel wisdom is and how this gospel wisdom works. Or you could say um, what this gospel wisdom is and, and, and how it manifests into gospel power, into gospel power. Because that's the, the question that we really wrestle with as Christians, isn't it? Isn't it? That's the question we're really concerned with, right? It's when does the gospel actually have power in the world and in our lives? Like we can believe all these things and know all these things, but when does it actually, like, like so what? When does it actually manifest and actually do something? So the nature of gospel wisdom is where we're going to start. And then once we grasp that, we can really understand how that leads into uh, the nature of gospel wisdom's power, what it does. <clears throat> um, so, so raise your hand if you've read a book or even seen the movies called The Hobbit. The Hobbit, anybody? Oh, lots of ho- Hobbitonians here. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Um, our daughter Lucy, she was reading the book and she recently finished it and, and she came jumping down the stairs. She always gets really, really excited when she finishes books, like this huge sense of accomplishment. Like, I mean, it never goes away, right? When you finish a book, you feel good, right? Like, I actually read an entire book. Look at me go, you know? Same thing happens when you're just eight years old. So she comes running down the stairs, bouncing, oh, I finished it, I finished it. And I said, did you like it? She said, I loved it. I was like, what did you like about it? She's like, oh, adventure and dragons. She's loved dragons for years. I don't know what it is, this mythical dragon creature, you know? And I, and I was like, oh, great. But then I was like, well, Lucy, what was the author trying to teach you? You know, because I've always been trying to teach Lucy as she finishes these books. So the question is like, what is the author trying to teach you? Because every author is trying to teach something. And, and without missing a beat, she said this, and I wrote it down so I didn't mess it up. Um, she said this. She said, that small things that people overlook are capable of big things. <sighs> she should review books, right? And I, I, I looked at her and I said, well, you want to preach my sermon on Sunday, girl? Like, let's go, you know? And it, because if you know The Hobbit, you know that it's a story about how a little unassuming nobody of a hobbit becomes the linchpin in this successful quest to, to get a gold hoard back from a dragon. And along the way, there's so many different characters that doubt him and judge him by his size and his demeanor, and all of them have to eat crow when he either directly saves their life or saves the entire cause. Small things that people overlook are capable of big things, of, of incredible things, of magnificent things. Paul would say of glorious things. That's the point of the Hobbit. And where is Tolkien getting this? He's getting it from the gospel. That's what he's trying to communicate. He's getting it from passages like this, right here, right here. And, And Paul says in this passage, think about who you were in the eyes of the world when God called you. Small things, foolish, not powerful, not much nobility about you. You're small things. You're, you're insignificant in, in the eyes of the world. You had no real value on the basis of human judgment. You weren't bringing much to society, honestly, if you were to evaluate it. 
but like Gandalf chose Bilbo, and you never really understand why until the end when it all ends up working out. God chose you. And Paul's emphasis here is on God's choosing nature. He says, God chose you, foolish Corinthians, to shame the wise. God chose you, weak Corinthians, to shame the strong. God chose you, insignificant, considered nothing, Corinthians, to bring to nothing that which is considered something in the world. And and many scholars, I love this, uh, who kind of study this for their job, you know, as like, they're just in the original languages all the time, the original culture, they just are these huge brainiacs. Most of them say, yeah, Paul was really flirting the line with outright offending these Corinthians at this point. (laughs) Calling them foolish, he's calling them dumb, weak, he really risked it, but, but he's reminding them about something about them as people so they can grasp how God's wisdom is altogether different from the world's wisdom. The world says, choose, if you have a cause, choose the wise and the powerful to partner with you in that cause. I mean, go back to the playground. Pick in teams for basketball. I've been during wound. I was a very, very small child. Up until, I didn't grow until like 13, I swear. Very small child. Always last to be picked for, for basketball at elementary school recess. Enduring wound. Enduring wound. Why did Nick always get to be the one that picked the teams? I don't know. So frustrating. Anyways, I was too small. But with human wisdom, the powerful get picked. But with God's wisdom, his peculiar, strange, odd, backwards, bizarre wisdom, doesn't work like that, Paul says. He's underlining this for the Corinthians. He says, remember when you became Christians? What was your state then? When God picked you to be on his team, were you anybody? Were you that tall? No. In fact, he picked you before the philosophers. He picked you before the intellectuals. He picked you before the nobility of Corinth. His wisdom's peculiar. But we shouldn't misunderstand at this point because um, what Paul says here is the same thing that the Hobbit illustrates it's, it's not that small people are capable of big things. Also, no. The peculiar wisdom of the gospel is saying that small, unassuming things are uniquely positioned to bring God glory precisely because of their small and unassuming state. Small, unassuming things are uniquely positioned to bring God's glory. And and so Paul's line of thought continues from what Dave talked about last week. You're embarrassed, Corinthians, to clumsily bring the gospel to the rest of the world? You're embarrassed about that? You have an inferiority complex about that? No, 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 you're missing the whole point. God chose you to embarrass them. You've got it completely backwards. This is what Paul's saying, the foolish to shame the wise, the weak to shame the strong, the nothing to shame the somethings. This is the whole point of godly wisdom. It's peculiar, it's backwards, I get it. But this is actually the nature of godly wisdom. It's so hard for us to grasp, isn't it? It's so hard for us to grasp. We want to hear someone who was once a scientist, who was once a philosopher, who was once a celebrity, We want to hear their story about how they came to faith and and hopefully someone videotaped it so I can share it with my friend who's not a Christian because maybe that, maybe that'll convince them that that faith in Jesus are reasonable, faith in Jesus are intelligent, powerful, popular. 
But Paul says, stop playing those games. That's not how the gospel of Jesus works. That's not the nature of gospel wisdom. God uses things that are typically overlooked, like you, like me, to reveal the most powerful thing this world has ever seen. That's what God does. And it's not a new game plan. It's not a game plan that just Jesus started. It's how God has always worked. Always worked. At the end of the passage here, um, if you're reading in a, a Bible that has like notes in it, it'll say it comes from a different passage, the, the part that says, uh, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. <clears throat> that comes from Jeremiah. And at the end of Jeremiah 9, this is the conclusion of Jeremiah uh, 9. And it's actually a, um, well, it's a conclusion to this kind of, it's a judgment oracle, which is all about, it takes Jeremiah chapter 8 and Jeremiah chapter 9. It's really long. And it's all about what? You could probably guess it. Shaming the wise. Shaming those who consider themselves wise. That's, that's, what, it's all, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. And, and it's really interesting because Jeremiah is actually the prophet who speaks to Israel and tells them that their final judgment is coming in, in the southern kingdom. And the southern kingdom, when that judgment kind of comes and they get conquered, they get conquered three separate times, actually. The Babylonians and then the Egyptians get in on it, then the Babylonians again. And Jeremiah himself is actually carried off to Egypt as, a, as an exile. And what Paul is saying is, hold up, guys. Do you realize what happens when you start leaning on your own wise state? Things tend to go really, really poorly. This isn't how God's, this isn't how God works. Things didn't go well for Israel when they did that. We're just supposed to boast in the fact that God was pleased enough to reveal himself to us and that we know him as a result. We're not supposed to boast in our own wisdom. God chose, God chose, God chose, Paul says in this passage. It's not your own doing. God did it. And he often chooses unimpressive people. If you want to look for impressive people with worldly influence to represent you, that's the quickest way to his dark side, Paul says, by quoting Jeremiah. It's how God's always worked. God chose Noah. That guy wasn't that great. You actually find out he was a bit of a drunk. God chose Abraham. That guy was just worshiping the moon, probably, when God revealed himself to him. God chose Jacob. That guy was kind of a weasel. You read, you read that guy's story? God chose Israel, just a small, obscure little family without their own land who had to go down to Israel or go down to Egypt to get food and were enslaved. God chooses small things. And Moses, before they go in to get, their, to, to get um, the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 7, he reminds them of that. I think we have that, that scripture. I'll, I'll throw it up here. Deuteronomy chapter 7. Um, the Lord, he's, he so doesn't want them to fall into the pit of thinking they are something great. So he says, hey, remember Israel, the Lord has his heart set on you and chose you not because you are more numerous than all peoples, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers, he brought you out with a strong hand and redeemed you from the place of slavery, the lowest rung in society, from the power of the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. This is how God has always worked. 
And so it shouldn't be a surprise that when he shows up on earth, he's working the exact same way. Jesus Christ, the wisdom of God, born to who? Poor, poor parents. They offer the smallest sacrifice, the, the sacrifice that's allotted for the poorest of the poor to, to sacrifice for their firstborn son as he's born. They're so poor. He's raised in the wrong part of the country, Nazareth. In fact, Israel had a saying back then, can anything good come out of Nazareth? It was like a colloquial saying of the day. He didn't have a scholastic upbringing at all. He was a carpenter. A carpenter. Jesus checked all of the boxes. Foolish, weak, low status in the eyes of the world. He's very wise, very strong. But in the eyes of the world, foolish, weak, low, low status. And, but when his ministry started, it went off like a firecracker because of it. People were like, who is this guy? He doesn't teach like one of our scribes or like one of our teachers of the law. He speaks as one with authority. And it's that foolish, weak, low status Jesus that upends all of Jewish society for three straight years. God chose to become that which is perceived as nothing, to bring to nothing that which humanly, humans viewed as something. And then he humbled himself even further to take the most embarrassing, low, low status, weakest position in his death on the cross that one could possibly ever experience. But it ended up being the most powerful thing ever. It ended up being the thing that conquered Satan and death and, and sin and, and brought power to everybody who'd put their faith in him. He changed the entire spiritual, physical world through that act, which is supposed to be the lowest, most disgusting thing that someone could experience. The picture we get throughout all the scriptures of God is this. He skips over the established he skips over the powerful. He bypasses the firstborn. He skips over the, the fertile. I, I wish we could go to Hannah. Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2, she sings this beautiful song, which is essentially the same thing of God using the weak to shame the strong. She was barren herself, but had Samuel who would go on to anoint the kings of Israel. God overlooks, steps over all of those things to choose the most unlikely figures to bring him, his glory into the world. So you, you could say, oh man, I could never proclaim God's message like, like Dave does or like Ryan does or like my cohort leader does. All these people, they just know how to talk about this. If I could never do that, that's a lie. That's a lie. And, and, and when you find yourself telling yourselves lies, do you know what you do? Step one, you say, this is a lie. Step two, you proclaim the truth. You speak truth over yourself, and that truth goes like this. God's peculiar wisdom uses people just like you. Just like you. That's what this, the story of the Bible, there's story after story after story of God and his peculiar wisdom picking you. That's what it's all about. Now, obviously, that all sounds great, right? It all sounds great. But, but now the question becomes, well, how in the world Am I supposed to bring to nothing something that's something? Like, it still seems like, woof, that's a huge task. And that's the perfect question to ask, because that's where Paul comes to next. Let's talk about how it leads to power. Power. 
In verse 30, I'm going to read it again here. This is what Paul says. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us. So he's identifying with them. For all of us, okay? And then Paul uses three words to describe what he's talking about. Our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And it's really difficult to know what these words are without any other words in this context because they're big, long words in the Greek. And so what we have to do is we have to do a little bit of diving into Pauline theology to see where he uses them elsewhere in the New Testament because that's where we're going to find what he means by this. And, and if that seems really overwhelming to you, it's okay, stick with me. I've got a great metaphor at the end that'll wrap it all together really nicely so you'll be able to, to run with it. So let's go through each one of these terms. First, our righteousness. God reveals through his scriptures, and we experience it every day, that not just the world is broken, but our neighbor is broken, our leaders are broken, and we're broken. We're broken. We're, we're, we're all misfiring in the wrong ways. We don't do the right things and often choose the wrong things to do instead. And, and that's bad in and of itself, yes. But why is it such an issue? But why is it so bad? You ever ask yourself that? Like, why is sinning so bad? It feels so good, right? Like, why, why is this so bad? Why is this such a big deal? Well, in his letter to the church in Rome, Paul wrote this. He wrote, for all have sinned, I haven't found someone yet that has said, no, I'm perfect. Okay? So he says, for all of sin, so he's saying something that everybody can agree to, but then something very important, and fallen short of the glory of God. Do you ever wonder why that, this is a very popular verse, you ever wonder why that second half is there? It's not just that, that humans have sinned and that they've messed up, it's that because of their sin and because of their shortcomings, they no longer can glorify God how we were meant to. We're, that's what we're supposed to do in this world, is actually glorify God. In Genesis 1, we find out that God created humans for a purpose, which is to bear his image in the world. And when we sin, that is when we act contrary or, or contra to who God is, we no longer are glorifying and embodying his image-bearing status that he has extended to us, and so we've fallen short of the glory of God. Which tells us what? One of our primary purposes is to glorify God. It's a very crucial, crucial point because in the end, this is what Eve and Adam and Eve did, we pursue our own glory instead of his. And because of that, we're due his punishment for not fulfilling the function that he's created us for and tasked us with here in the now. But by God's plan, or you could say by his peculiar wisdom, Jesus becomes our righteousness by way of the cross, by way of the cross. Yes, he takes all of our sin and experiences the penalty that's, that's due it from the Father. Now that washes us clean, but it's our trust in the power of God to do just that, which opens up a relationship with Jesus where his righteous, perfect life gets extended to us and dwells within us through someone called the Holy Spirit. Okay, so, so righteousness is not just extended to us by God taking away our sin and Jesus paying it for it on the cross, but Christ's righteous life through the Holy Spirit gets sent into our hearts when we put faith in God of him atoning for our sin. Siri. Goodness gracious. 
So, so, so in that way, our sin goes on Jesus, and his perfect life goes into us. That's what Paul is saying when he's saying that he becomes our righteousness. He said it like this in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified through Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives through me. He's talking to Jesus's Jesus becoming his righteousness. Jesus is living through him. Jesus is my righteousness, is what he's saying. He's responsible for all the good that I do, he says. I can't take any credit of it for myself. So that's righteousness. Then uh, sanctification. Some translations will say holiness here. They're really the same word in the Greek. Um, Christ becomes the guiding force of what makes us holy throughout our lives. In a process called sanctification, now, this is kind of, this is washing language, but it's often on a different level than justification. And um, in justification, which is how um, righteousness, I was supposed to tell you, sorry, righteousness is extended to us through faith, which means that we're justified by faith. That's kind of the big po- point of righteousness is extended to us through our faith. Okay, so when we have faith in God, God looks and declares us uh, clean. And when we have faith in Jesus, he declares us clean and extends Christ's righteousness to us. Now, uh, sanctification is a little bit different than that because it really acknowledges that we still mess up. We still mess up. We're, we're, we're still sinful and even have significant ways that sin still sticks to us, don't we? That it still dwells within us. We're still fighting it all the time. And, and the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus, is this continual prompting and guiding presence calling us to live lives of obedience, lives that seek to honor God, lives that seek to love neighbor, sacrifice for the family of God, pursue God's glory instead of our own, lives that get serious about treasuring the word of God as the guide for all of life, which means like abstaining from things like, like greed and sexual immorality and pride and, and, and the like like this. Now, in the peculiar wisdom of God, Jesus becomes our sanctification, Paul says, And this is because he promises that he's going to complete it one day. Like, we're all kind of struggling in the now. But but one day, it's going to be completed. This comes from um, 1 Thessalonians. When Paul's talking to the Thessalonians, he says to them, he's praying for them. He says, may the God of peace sanctify you. He goes on. This is one of these long run-on sentences that Paul does. And then he concludes the sentence with, and and God is faithful. He will do it. It's going to be done, or he will complete it. You see, the justification has already been finished. We're still awaiting the completion of sanctification. God started it. God will finish it. And in the now, we participate with the Holy Spirit to grow. We can't take credit for our progress because it's still Christ living in us and through us. All right, now let's move on to redemption. And don't worry, that metaphor is right around the corner, okay? Now this is where it gets really exciting. Um, If Paul's already talked about justification and sanctification, what's left? Like what's what's left for Jesus to personify in our lives? There's so much more. It's redemption. Redemption. Redemption is Jesus taking every part of your life and redeeming it. And redeeming is this word that that is used in in the Old Testament when God uh, takes Israel out of slavery in Egypt. That's where it comes up the first time. He says, I'm redeeming you, which is, I'm buying you. You're slaves. I'm buying you out of slavery. I'm, I'm redeeming you. 
And God wants to do this with every aspect of your life. All of it. All of it. It's, it's Jesus taking your story and redeeming it into a story about what God's been up to. It's, it's Jesus taking uh, the darkest parts of what you might be most ashamed of and afraid of and, and bringing them to light in a way that, that, that shows God's power and working in your life in a beautiful, beautiful way. It's, it's trusting, learning to trust Jesus even in your weaknesses and allowing him to use you even in spite of them. Uh, public speaking, horrified of it for the first 25 years of my life. Horrified of it. Like anxiety in the bathroom before high school presentations on anything. It was a group project. There's like six of us sharing the stage, but I'm still like... Oh, you know, I think a lot of people have that, right? A lot of us. I mean, you, usually I'm just like, what I had to tell myself for the longest time was like, no one wants to be up here. No one wants to be up here. They actually, they actually are just happy that it's not them. You know, it's okay. It's okay. But when I discovered that God had given me the spiritual gift of teaching, I was like, oh man, <laughs> dang it. So I stepped into it over and over and over again. That's, that's God working through me in order to make his wisdom known. You could ask anyone I went to high school with that, or tell them that I get up in front of people and talk, they'd be like, Ryan? No, not Ryan. Not that guy. That guy was a wallflower. Are you kidding me? <clears throat> but this is when Christians begin to glow. This is actually when Christians begin to point to God and glorify who he is because everything about them is only a result of what he has done in their lives. This is really when Christians begin to enter into glorifying God again. Um, Paul did this all the time in his letters, and we have a couple of them preserved for us here in in the New Testament scriptures. He, He would say things like, I was a strong, powerful dude, of Pharisees, I was top level. Teachers of the law, very few could go with me. I was strongly exhibiting my will and, and, and my activity in the world to the point where I was throwing Christians in jail and having them killed. But look who I was when I came to you, Corinthians, we're going to see this in a couple of weeks. I was weak and mild and low in nature. That's God's power through Paul. Conversely, it's actually making Paul... <laughs> a weak kind of wallflower type of guy, just proclaiming the the message of Jesus, not actually trying to to strong arm anybody into anything. That's God's power happening in Paul's life. Now, now don't get me wrong. There's there's power in justification. There's power in sanctification, unto salvation and obedience. Those are incredible things. But power unto glorification comes through redemption. It comes to, it's, it's tied to redemption, but, so if you, if you stop with, with justification, getting right with God, and, and trying to work to obey him in your life, if you stop there, that's great. That's great work. But if you stop there, you're going to miss out on this glow that we're talking about. Because if you let the, what, the wisdom of God powerfully redeem all the aspects of your, of your life, uh, your story, your disposition, your dreams, your hopes, your broken hopes, your broken dreams, your, your desires, your, your sin patterns, if, if you do the work to do that, which is really just like get honest about that with God, bring that into some, some trusted relationships, if you really bring that stuff to bear, what you're going to start seeing is God's going to work really powerfully through it 
to bring glory, his glory into the world. That's when the foolish begin to shame the wise. That's when the weak begin to shame the strong. When you begin to glow with the power of the gospel and glorify God, that's when you're really firing on all cylinders. That's when you've really leaned into redemption, the redemption that Jesus Christ wants to be for you. Now, I promised you a metaphor for all this. Uh, we've been watching a show lately in the Farrell household. It's on HGGO, you know. Uh, I think it's previously known as HGTV, but everything is a streaming service now. Um, called Hometown. Hometown. Anybody here know the show Hometown? Nobody. Oh, it's okay. Oh, th- thank you, Kate. Thank you. But um, it, you've seen shows like it. It's a home remodel show. It's a great show. Oh, it's just this adorable show. This is an adorable southern couple. He's a woodworker. She's an interior designer. What they do is they, they find people who want to buy houses in their hometown of Laurel, Mississippi, and, and they, wanna, they, they, they show them the ugliest houses, the grossest houses that they can find, because they have a mission to beautify their, their little town. I looked it up. It's only like 17,000 people out in backwards Mississippi. But they have this goal to, to beautify their town. And so what they do is they find people who are, are willing to invest in, in property. They say, you could buy that big grand house or you could buy this, small, this smaller house um, and we could fix it up for you. But these houses are gross. Like you walk through it and like there's always, you know, 50-year-old shag carpet on wood floors that hasn't been... The house hasn't been painted in years. There's holes in the roof, the ceiling, the floors, everything. Really, really gross, you know, but they love doing it. And I'm sure it's because they're, they're making some good money. I bet that helps. But, but think of God's wisdom through Christ as a house remodel project. Okay, stick with me here. Righteousness. This is really everything that makes a house a house. A foundation, walls on the outside, and a roof. You don't have those walls on the outside. It's just a gazebo, right? So. It's a house that you can hold the Holy Spirit. That's justification by faith, okay? Foundation, walls, roof. Um, And then sanctification really can function as the floor plan of the house, functions as the systems that make living in that house actually comfortable. Heating, air conditioning, electricity, water, the floor plan with the walls. You know, all of a sudden, okay, we have a house that we can live in comfortably. It's working. But then redemption Redemption is going to be the things like those finishes, the colors that are chosen, the type of countertops you're going to choose. Um, he always, he's a woodworker, so he always makes a couple pieces of furniture that are really specifically tuned to, to the people who are looking, who are actually funding this whole project. And she's an interior designer, so she like gets to know their story a little bit. And is like, oh, you just love the beach. I'm going to make it feel beaching here without being over the top. She's really, really gifted at it, actually. I just put like a surfboard somewhere, but she's like, not corny like that. Anyways, but it, it becomes really individualistic, fine-tuned, and always when they do the home reveal, the owners look at it for the first time and they just, they just fall apart to tears. It's glowing. It's glowing. It wouldn't be like that without that final step of redemption. Those final finishes and colors and, and, and furniture and all the work they put into it, they love it. They love it. You see, each of us are God's redemption project. In a house of bare bones, it's not that glorious. It's just not. We can say to ourselves, okay, at least I have a place to live, but when we do that, we're really failing to grasp that we are God's redemption project. He's restoring us back to our original purpose, to reveal his glory in the world. And, and here's the thing. I watched the show, this couple, they love doing it more than anything. And I'm like, gosh, I hate 
doing anything in my house. But they love it. God loves doing it with us. Loves it. Like, he loves and enjoys coming into our lives, walking with us, guiding us, tenderly prompting us as as dealing with the hard things in our life in order to take them into something beautiful for his glory and his good. God loves doing it. And when it happens and people come into our lives and they see the glow, they ask, what happened here? You, Ryan, are terrible with house remodel stuff. Who did this? You can say, Jesus. Jesus Christ did this in my life. He did it. Just like those couples, you know, they're super old and fuddly usually, you know. You walk into their homes, people are like, this couple definitely did not do this work in this house. Who did it? They have to say, this is my interior designer. (laughs) This is my carpenter. Jesus did it for me. Jesus did it. And he loves nothing more than doing it. Now, this may happen to you when you embark on a restoration project with God. It happened to me in college. I'm going to give you a little bit of heads up. Um, And it happens in the show. Um, Every now and then, they discover, oh man, termites termites have eaten through this foundation. Oh man, there's like half of a chimney in the attic that could fall through the ceiling at any time that they removed the lower half and it's still up there. Oh man, there's rotting joists in the ceiling. And they always do the same thing. They look at the camera and they say, all right, now we have to stop everything, call in the right people to get this fixed before we do anything else. Because when you are on a a home restoration project with God, a life restoration project with Jesus Christ, what you might find is you don't understand the gospel. You don't understand that justification really is by faith alone. You might think that you don't really need justification. You might think that your justification comes by how good you do for God. And when that happens, don't be ashamed. Be encouraged. Do the same thing that this couple does. Look at the camera and say, stop everything. Slow down. Let's call in the professionals, your cohort leader, any one of the senior leadership team here, the elders, deacons here at Sedaris. Let's get this fixed before moving on. Because if you don't fix that before you move on, one year, two years, five years, ten years down the road from now, there's going to be a wind that blows on your house and it'll collapse. It'll all come down. And so you have to get the bones right. You, there's an order to this. It's not just like we, we pick, ooh, the redemption sounds really good. I'm going to lean into that, you know? No, we start with justification by faith. We lean into to asking the Holy Spirit to cleanse us and wash us and, and, and free us from, from the sin in our lives. And at the same time, we can be doing the redemption. Uh, but we always have to start with justification by faith. We can't skip that one. And if you find you have, that's okay. I found that out myself. I was trying to fight sin in my life. Also, and also I couldn't do it. And I realized, oh, wait, I don't understand what the gospel really is. Once I got that right, the ladder could be worked out. Okay. Um, when, when we let Jesus be our righteousness, we trust him. We trust him that he is God's mercy and grace for us. When we let him be our holiness and when we let him shine us up and be our redemption, when we let him buy back even the most gross and disgusting part of our lives, what we find is we start to glow in the world and people start asking us, what's going on in your life? Because God uses small things that people tend to typically overlook to accomplish those great, grand, and big things to bring him glory. 
So today, just embrace yourself as a fixer-upper. God purposely chooses houses that need a lot of work. Doesn't always choose turnkey houses. That doesn't mean he doesn't every now and then choose a turnkey house. But he usually picks uh, fixer-uppers. He's always worked this way. He did it in Jesus Christ. When he showed up, he did it himself. And he wants to do it in all of us. So let's pray.